Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. So today I'm going to play the second talk that fellow saloner Paul Harley recorded and sent to me. In my previous podcast, I played the talk that Dr. David Nutt gave at the 2016 Glastonbury Festival that Paul sent me, and uh, that talk was immediately followed by the one that I'm about to play for us. As you will hear in just a moment, Graham Hancock asks the question, Do psychedelics really matter? And while I'm not going to try and answer that myself right now, I can say without question that psychedelics most definitely facilitate changes in a person's outlook on the world. Several years ago, I attended some conferences at which Graham spoke, and he was speaking mainly about his archaeological work. In fact, these entire conferences were mainly about the esoteric archaeology that uh, people like John Anthony West were writing about. And it was at one of these conferences that, well, as far as I know, Graham Hancock first came out publicly and discussed his ayahuasca experiences. In fact, uh, it happened to be the very day his new book, Supernatural, was published. And the first public talk about his psychedelics was given in the evening, after the conference was technically over for the day, and we weren't allowed to record it, because, well, back then, almost any connection whatsoever with psychedelics would be a death blow for publicly uh, acclaimed people like Graham Hancock. You know, just like the N-word is today, at the beginning of this century, the P-word, psychedelic, was just as toxic. And uh, so we all thought that he was being exceptionally brave to talk about his psychedelic experiences in public, even though it was at a relatively obscure conference. Well, since then, he has had considerably more experience with these marvelous substances, and as you will now hear, Graham Hancock is an unabashed advocate of ending this insane war on people who use non-prescription drugs. So do psychedelics matter? Well, at least in the life of Graham Hancock, and in my own life as well, the answer is a definitive yes. So now let's rejoin the audience at the 2016 Glastonbury Festival where Dr. David Nutt had just finished speaking and learn about Graham Hancock's answer to the question that he just posed. Thank you. Thank you for being here. It was fascinating to listen to Professor David Nutt uh, just now. Um, I've just come from America and it's interesting what's happening there. In a state like Colorado, you can actually be treated like an adult. It's, uh, it's a really interesting thing. America was at the... It's the power behind the war on drugs. And yet, state by state in America, the war on drugs is being wrecked and destroyed by the people themselves. The people are stopping the war on drugs. I wish we had the same kind of system in Britain where, I don't know, Yorkshire or Somerset could put one finger up to central government and say, fuck you, we're going to make cannabis legal. You know, and maybe, maybe, that's what's, maybe that's what's needed, you know, we stop... Maybe, maybe there's some kind of revolution in the making here. Our governments are are so determined to impose these insane policies upon us 
that the the whole the whole creditworthiness of, of, of government in every way becomes suspect if it was not if it was not suspect already. Um, I'm I'm here to uh, ask the question and, and try to offer some answers whether do psychedelics do psychedelics matter? And and obviously I think that psychedelic psychedelics matter a great deal. Uh, let me start with with a little bit of my personal story. Uh, I came, well, my first experience with psychedelics was LSD in 1974, probably before most of you were born, uh, at a thing called the Windsor Free Festival. I went there with three friends. I didn't know anything about psychedelics, but we were offered this little tablet, which we cut into three pieces, and then we had one third of it each. And I had, a, I had an absolutely amazing experience that night. The Windsor Free Festival was a bit like Glastonbury, actually. Uh, and I regard that event as the true end of the 1960s. Uh, I spent the entire night, 12 hours, just walking around this amazing festival, and I found myself transported back in time. Uh, I convinced myself that I was back in the Viking Age uh, and that each encampment that I came to with these long-haired people was a little Viking encampment. Uh, I had all kinds of adventures. I found, a, I found a tree in which I believed that there was a giant spider uh, and the giant spider was uh, wrapping people up in cocoons. Uh, at the same time I realized that those cocoons were sleeping bags. Um, I carried on. I carried on walking all night. It was amazing. I found myself talking to flowers, communing with the stars. It was just a, a, a incredibly beautiful, mind-opening, very powerful experience. When I got back to the tent, I found that one of my three friends was sitting there in the tent in a state of total collapse. He'd had a he'd had an absolutely horrific night. Uh, he, was, he was terrified, there was no meaning in life. And so I said, well, look, come for a walk. Let's, let's, let's go for a walk. And we, we walked around, and off through the fields in the distance, I saw what I took to be a line of blue elves who were walking towards us, waving some kind of sticks. And I turned to my friend and I said, what the fuck are those elves doing there? And he said, those aren't fucking elves, those are policemen. And I said, are you serious? And he said, yeah, and they're coming this way, we better run. And actually they smashed up that entire festival. Uh, and that's why I regard it as the uh, real end of the 1960s. Now, after that, I, I looked at my friend and his experience. While I say this, let me, let me just tell a small anecdote about the late, great Terence McKenna. Uh, and, and, this, and this anecdote is told to me by my friend Luis Eduardo Luna, who knew Terence from the early 1970s, and Luis is a, a shaman with whom I frequently drink uh, ayahuasca. Uh, Luis tells this story about Terence, that Terence had taken a heroic dose of psilocybin, However, nothing was happening. And he was saying to himself, it's not strong enough. 
it's not strong enough. So he took another heroic dose of psilocybin. And sometime afterwards, the universe began to melt down around him in a state of total chaos and collapse. And then a voice spoke in his ear and said, is that strong enough for you, asshole? <laughs> so after my LSD experience, I was, uh, I was frankly afraid, although I'd had a wonderful experience. I thought, what happens if if that experience went the other way? What happened if I had an experience like my friend had? And for many, many years after that, although I became a regular user of cannabis, I never uh, took another psychedelic. And in fact, I didn't take another psychedelic until 2003. That's how many years ago? 30, 30 years later. Uh, and the reason I initially did so was that I was writing a book called Supernatural, Meetings with the Ancient Teachers of Mankind, which looked at, uh, at the role of altered states of consciousness in the human experience. And I've always felt as a writer that I can't authentically write about anything if I don't have the experience myself. I was interested in rock and cave art around the world, and the suggestion that this was inspired by visionary experiences in psychedelic states, and uh, lo and behold, I discovered that in the Amazon jungle in South America, shamans use ayahuasca to enter deeply altered states of consciousness. And afterwards, they often come out of that visionary state and paint the imagery that they have seen in their visions. And this is exactly what was suggested about, about cave art. So it was obvious to me that I had to go to the Amazon and I had to drink ayahuasca. So. I found myself in early 2004 uh, in the Amazon rainforest uh, in a clearing with uh, half a dozen other people and a shaman and I'm given this uh, truly smelly and disgusting tasting brew uh, to, to, to drink. How many here have drunk ayahuasca? Yeah, uh, it, I mean... <laughs> Well, those who've drunk it will know that it's not an easy thing to drink. It, it's, uh, it, it, it tastes bad. Uh, maybe a mixture of essence of old socks, um, some raw sewage, uh, a bit of sulfur, some battery acid, and just a hint of chocolate. Um, after about 45 minutes, your, uh, your system begins to feel decidedly strange. You feel, you feel perhaps a little nauseous, a little ominous rumblings in the stomach and uh, you, 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 you realize that you're not quite where you were before. Uh, it's very difficult to deal with the physical aspects of, of ayahuasca, particularly in the jungle. They call it the purge for a very good reason, is that it makes you, it makes you shit buckets, basically. And uh, I found myself after about an hour and a half, not in a deeply visionary state, but desperately needing to... Um, uh, to have a shit. Uh, and, and, you know, we Brits are very inhibited and it seemed, it seemed very odd that I was going to just, like, in earshot of these people, I was going to go behind a tree and drop my pants and relieve myself. But there was no other alternative. I had to do that. Uh, so, I, so I did so. And while I'm squatting there, I look up at this tree and realize that the spider I'm looking at actually isn't there. It's in my head. And, and uh, I come back to the circle and that's when I when I discovered that the most important 
aspect of ourselves is not our bodies. That's one of the lessons that ayahuasca teaches, that it's not our bodies that, that, that are important, it's our consciousness. And what's happening at the level of consciousness, when you allow it in, when you surrender to the experience, is utterly extraordinary and transformatory. I carried on, I had a series of 11 sessions with ayahuasca in the Amazon. It gave me enough material to write my book, but it also taught me that I had very far to go, that I had enrolled in some kind of school, the school of Mother Ayahuasca, and the school had lessons to teach me uh, about myself and about the nature of reality. Uh, I, I, I have never regarded reality the same since I began to work with, with ayahuasca. And so I've continued the work. I try to have one or two, sometimes as many as five sessions with ayahuasca each year. Uh, and I'm doing that because I still feel that I have many lessons to learn. I, ayahuasca is a wonderfully socially integrative medicine. Uh, it teaches us uh, who we are and the impact that we have upon others and it urges us to look at that impact and to make ourselves better, more nurturing, more positive uh, human beings. Uh, this is really a universal experience with ayahuasca. People who drink ayahuasca anywhere in the world find themselves reviewing their own conduct and looking for ways to make themselves better people, to be more helpful and more useful uh, to others. So why on earth would any society like ours seek to make ayahuasca and other psychedelics illegal? Why would it, why would it do that when, when the effects of these substances are, are incredibly positive and helpful and, and truly and honestly do help us to be more nurturing, more, more positive, more loving human beings? It's not a magic pill. It's not like you drink ayahuasca and get instant enlightenment. What, what, what it is is the beginning of a long process of work. It's one thing to get the understanding, to understand what you need to do, what you need to change. It's another thing to integrate those changes into your life uh, and actually act them out. And that's where the work comes. That's, that's where it's really not easy at all. It's very, very difficult to change a lifetime of bad habits. But... But ayahuasca offers us a way to do so. I'm not saying it's the only way. There's lots, of, there's lots of other ways to do so. But maybe in a highly materialistic, controlling, dominated society, uh, maybe we, many of us really need the help of the ancient and sacred plants to break our minds free from the chains that have been imposed upon them. Because we do clearly live in an insane society. The society that we live in is, by any definition, psychopathically insane and unconscious and and massive, massive forces are at work using our tax money to keep things, to keep things that way. This insanity is evident at a global level. Only a truly psychopathically insane global human society would allow warfare to occur at all. The fact that wars occur, 
the fact that we can be persuaded to go and kill other people in other lands is, should not be regarded as normal. This is deeply abnormal. It's a sign of a society that's gone, that's gone terribly wrong. Uh, and, and then there's the issue of uh, the rainforests. What, what, kind of, what kind of global society is it that can stand by and allow the precious resource of biodiversity that is the Amazon, that, that sacred realm, just stand by and allow it to be destroyed. Uh, allow those trees to be, to be cut down, great clearances to, to take place, to grow soya beans, to feed cattle, so that some of us can eat hamburgers. Not me, because I'm a vegetarian, but, you know, some of us. What, what kind of society could, could allow that? Uh, a rational, conscious, sane society would look at the economic predicament of the peoples of the Amazon and say to them, you are amidst one of the most precious resources on earth. We would like to make your lives easy so that that resource can be looked after, nurtured for the whole planet. But we don't do that. There's no, there's no initiative at all to do anything like that. Instead, what's the big money going into? The big money is going into weapons of mass destruction so that we can come up with ever more cunning and devious ways to murder one another on a global scale. No problem in raising trillions of dollars for battleships and aircraft carriers and fighter aircraft and helicopters, any, any machine which can be used to destroy fellow human beings. We have no problem raising money for that. But to raise the money, to make it worthwhile for the peoples of the Amazon, never to allow another tree to be cut down, we can't even begin to think about that idea. And it would be peanuts by comparison with the uh, expenditure on weapons of mass destruction. Then there's the issue of uh, global pollution, uh, that, the, that, that we're poisoning this beautiful garden of a planet on which we live, we're poisoning it at a, at a vast uh, collective level. And, and nobody's taking any responsibility for that. Uh, and at the level of individuals, our society encourages us to be producers and consumers of material goods and nothing more. It encourages us to identify our egos with what we own rather than with who we are. Uh, it encourages us to put ourselves first and everybody else second. And these to me are, are all symptoms of a global society that is completely and utterly uh, insane. We have, we have passed, I think, we have passed, I think, the moment, the time in history when nationalism was of any use. And yet, in the tendencies that are at work in the world today, there is more and more focus on nation and on patriotism. Why, I ask myself, why should I feel this emotion of patriotism? Why should I especially like or trust or love somebody just because they happen to be born on the same piece of land as me? Which means that their parents fucked on the same piece of land that my parents fucked on. 
Why does, that, why does that make them have anything special in common with me? Why should I be willing to actually go out and kill people of other nations just because I was born accidentally in this nation? Uh, it, it, it's a, a symptom of a deeper problem, which is the creation of artificial boundaries. Artificial boundaries between us. We are all one human family. We are all brothers and sisters. You know, I have to say this. I witnessed a, a, a little thing happened as we were on our way in here today. My wife, Santa, who's standing over there, is a person of color. Uh, Santa was in the back of the car. I was in the front. We passed one of the stewards, and then the steward shouted, Hey, who's that in the back? And stopped us. And I realized immediately what was going on, because that happens again and again that racial profiling was going on and that that person saw a person of color and decided that they might be suspect in some way. I don't think that person was consciously racist, but that racism is deeply ingrained in the, in the psyche. And it's part, of, um, it's part of these artificial boundaries that are created. Wherever I travel in the world, I find that people are exactly the same. The same hopes, the same fears, the same dreams, the same capacity to love. We are none of us any different. It's absurd to suggest that we are. And this, this new focus on nationalism uh, is, in my view, uh, a profoundly regressive step which is taking place. Don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm not for one world government. I'm not for any government. I'm an anarchist. We, we don't, need, we don't need governments. We don't need states telling us what to do. In my opinion, the role of government in our society needs to be wound back very, very far. And we need to start relating to one another responsibly as individuals without hiving that responsibility off onto governments who are, who are funded with, with our money. It's... Uh, it's a really most unfortunate situation that's developing in the world. And the thing is that the, the societies, the governments, the nations that have made drugs illegal, that have created that evil and monstrous enterprise called the war on drugs, they are the same societies that are responsible, the same governments that are responsible for all the ills that are taking place in the world. Why should we listen to a single fucking word they say? They're obviously mad. They're completely discredited in every area. They're consummate liars and deceivers. Of course they're lying to us and deceiving us about psychedelics. Now, as David pointed out, psychedelics have uh, been part of the human story since the very beginning. There's archaeological evidence for the use of ayahuasca in the Amazon going back more than 4,000 years. I'm convinced it goes much further back than that. Uh, human, human society, in fact, there's a case to be made that, uh, and, and Terence McKenna was one of the first to make this case, and he did so in a brilliant way in his book, Food of the Gods, that the emergence of modern human consciousness is a product of psychedelic use. It's very clear if you go back to the painted caves and you look at the cave art, the, the ancient art that was, uh, that, that was created there, that this is visionary art. And the emergence of this art is accompanied by 
what is regarded as the single most important step forward in the evolution in human behavior. That's when we, are, we, we seem, our ancestors seem to acquire notions of spirituality. They, they begin to bury uh, grave goods, food and, and water with the dead. Uh, and, and, and as a matter of fact, they start burying the dead for the first time. Uh, the, the, the grave goods tell us that those societies uh, had learned, had understood that death is not the end that death is the beginning, perhaps, of the next great adventure, that some aspect of the human being survives physical death and, and carries on. And it comes back to this, to this point that uh, we are not our bodies. We are our consciousness. Uh, and, and the mystery of consciousness is, is, is huge and profound. We don't, we don't know, really, what consciousness is. We, we can't explain it. But one of the ways to, to get to grips with the mystery of consciousness is provided to us by generous nature herself uh, in the form of the psychedelics. They are, they are one of the most effective routes for, for understanding what consciousness is all about. Uh, and, and I think that we need to, we need to keep that very much, in, very much in mind. The historical context of psychedelics worldwide up until modern times, really up until the last century, has been a context of, of wise and intelligent use of psychedelics for the betterment of society. It's really only us. It's only Western technological civilization with its, with its focus on machines, with its death culture, which has, which has made psychedelics illegal. Uh, and I don't think we should be surprised that our governments lie to us about drugs and lie to us about psychedelics and seek to make them illegal. Because there's a really big difference between alcohol, which I regard as the most boring drug on the planet, and, uh, and, and, and psychedelics. Alcohol does not lead to a questioning of the prevailing control system in our society. Alcohol serves the control system in our society. Uh, it allows people to carry on being functional producers and consumers by giving them a little holiday at the end of the day before they go back and do it all again the next day. It doesn't lead to any profound questioning about the nature of society or about why things are the way they are or about the nature of reality. Psychedelics do lead to that profound questioning. First of all, as David rightly said, they are far less dangerous than alcohol. In fact, really, psychedelics aren't dangerous at all. Sure, people can have terrifying experiences on psychedelics, but normally what happens as time goes by is you realize that that terrifying experience taught you something of great value to yourself. Often, I think we have to, we have to overcome our fears in order to, in order to learn. Um, and, and, and that's why they, the shamans say in the Amazon, after you've drunk the brew, when that huge serpent, 300 meters long, comes towards you and, and opens its jaws wide, don't run away. Just dive right into those jaws. Get right into it. Nurture your courage. And, 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 and this, this learning about, about courage is, 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 is an important aspect of the psychedelic experience. But fundamentally, we are dealing with substances that lead to questioning 
of the existing control system in our society. Uh, and that is obviously regarded as very dangerous by the powers that be. And that, as David rightly said, is why we have these hysterical media campaigns uh, which, which uh, seek to stir up fear and hatred and suspicion around the subject of psychedelics. Uh, and, and finally has brought us to this ridiculous situation in Britain where all psychoactive substances, except these empty ones, uh, are, are illegal. Now, I can't understand how politicians can live with themselves when they allow such laws to be brought into place. I mean, we trumpet, we make a big fuss, a big noise about the idea uh, that we live in a free society. You'll hear most of our politicians praising our democracy and its wonderful effects. Well, first of all, I'd like to make the point that the fact that we live in a democracy doesn't mean that we live in a, in a free society at all. Actually, what it means is that we live in a very mind-controlled society. Because democracy uh, only works when you have total honesty, total transparency, complete openness, no facts hidden, no big money being put into advancing particular points of view. Instead, in our society, uh, the opposite is true. It's secretive, hidden, occult. Huge money is put into lobbying to advance particular positions and to destroy other positions. So what triumphs in a democracy is not the best ideas. It's the ideas with the most power and money behind them. And in that sense, it's absurd to say that we live in a free society. I think we live in one of the most mind-controlled societies that has ever existed on planet Earth. And it's a terrifying and deadly society, which is, which is ready to make war upon others and murder them. It is truly a psychopathic society. But another aspect of this is the, the very notion of freedom. What is, what is this idea of freedom? How can, a, how can politicians stand up there and say, we live in a free society, when at the same time, they will send us to prison and ruin our lives for exploring the mystery of our own consciousness with psychedelics? There is nothing more personal, more individual, more sapient, more close to ourselves than our consciousness. And somehow, by some trick, we've been persuaded to hand over the keys of our own consciousness to the state. It's utterly, utterly meaningless to talk about freedom of any kind when we have no freedom of consciousness, when we can only assert our freedom of consciousness at personal risk by breaking laws that could lead to our imprisonment and worse. It's absurd to suggest that we're free in that society. We, if we do not have sovereignty over consciousness, we don't have sovereignty of any sort. Uh, and therefore, to me, this is a, an absolutely fundamental issue uh, concerning the kind of society that we live in today. Fortunately, things are changing. People are waking up all around the world. It's my privilege to travel a great deal to talk to people in many countries. And what I see everywhere are gatherings like this. People who are awake, who are conscious, who know what the fuck is going on. You know? And part of the reason we know that is because psychedelics 
have whispered in our ear and just brought us forward and opened, opened the curtain a little bit. And we've seen the wizard behind the curtain. We've seen who is manipulating us. We understand that we live in a world of lies. Things are changing because people are waking up. And I'm, I'm fundamentally very optimistic about the future of humanity. I think that there is um, a tremendous correction underway at the moment. And it's a correction that is going to change everything. Within two centuries, if the human race survives, if the dominator psychopaths don't get their way, then this time will be looked back upon as a time of extraordinary, dramatic, and beautiful change in the human story. We, we find it hard to see that because we're caught up in the struggle of that change right now. But something amazing and something remarkable is happening, which is going to change everything. We're beginning to see some, some of these developments with, the, with David Nutt's research, with the, fact, the very fact that against all odds and against all opposition, uh, he's been able to do that research and, and bring to light more of the, of the mysteries of psychedelics. We're beginning to see that awakening in the state-by-state -state legalization of cannabis in the United States. That's the people asserting themselves and saying, it is our right to make decisions about our own consciousness and our own bodies while doing no harm to others. And it's none of the fucking business of the state. The state does not belong there. The state has no place inside our heads. My hope is that the very absurdity of the drug war, the very absurdity of the ridiculous, monstrous, psychoactive substances act, that this very absurdity will prove to have been a step too far for the state, uh, and that it will begin to unravel itself. In summary, I think that uh, psychedelics matter because they're at the cutting edge of real, meaningful change in our society. If you go back three or four hundred years, uh, you will find a time when people who knew that the Earth goes around the sun, when people who knew that and said that were called heretics. People who knew that and said that could be burnt at the stake for suggesting that actually the earth goes around the sun rather than the other way around because until then it was believed that the sun went around the earth. The heliocentric model was a great heresy. Galileo was forced to recant. Giordano Bruno was burned at the stake in February 1601 in Rome. They ensured that his death lasted almost two days. They kept the fire very slow to punish him for his absolute conviction that we live in a heliocentric solar system, that the Earth goes around the sun. Uh, this was a, a regarded as a tremendous heresy at the time, as an attack on the, on the fundamentals of society. Giordano Bruno was, was presented as a, as a monstrous, demonic figure who deserved to be burned at the stake. Well, we don't burn people at the stake anymore today, although I think there are many in our government who would like to do so. We don't burn people at the stake. Instead, we ruin their lives, imprison them, and fuck them up in every possible way 
for working with, with psychedelics and, 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 and other substances. I think that those of us who are heretics today, heretics over the issue of psychedelics, we need to speak our truth. We need to speak it openly. We need to come out of the closet, even though there is personal risk, and say that these substances used responsibly, used wisely, used in a nurturing and positive way, with love, with good intent, are incredible instruments, incredible instruments for, for personal development and for, for realizing uh, the nature of the universe. A fundamental shift of reference frame is underway, and that's why I think psychedelics matter, because they're absolutely central to that. We have been in a system that is focused on materialism. And when I say materialism, I, I don't just mean the love of material things. Materialism is a, is, is a philosophy which, which views uh, everything as reducible to matter. That there is no non-physical component uh, to, to consciousness or, or to reality. That's the system that we live in, and that's what psychedelics challenge. Because psychedelics dissolve boundaries. They dissolve boundaries between us and our neighbors and people of other nations. They dissolve boundaries between us and the universe. As Terence McKenna said, they dissolve boundaries between us and our cat, uh, even between us and our washing machine. Uh, <laughs> psychedelics dissolve boundaries and they lead to a fundamental questioning of the reference frame of materialism. So it's a brilliant thing today, even if painful, even if difficult, to be a heretic. Speak out for heresy. Speak out for your truth. Speak out for the future of humanity, which is not a future of endless war, which is not a future of endless production and consumption, which is not a future of the mindless pursuit of short-term profits, but which is a future that recognizes the fundamental unity of the whole human family. We, we are so... Thank you. We are, we are so locked down by the society that we live in that we desperately now need the help of the ancient and sacred plants to break out of those chains uh, and, and find ourselves in the world that can be. That's why a kind of reverse missionary activity is taking place in the world today. It used to be that it was the, the white man from the north who went to the south bringing the good news of, God, by God, good news, of Christianity. That was the missionary model, but now we have other missionaries because shamans from the Amazon are traveling all throughout the western world and they are here to help to heal the sickness of the West. And the sickness of the West is that we have completely severed our connection with spirit. And if we do not reconnect with spirit, and if we don't do so soon, then the future of the world can be, can be very dark. So the spread of ayahuasca around the Western world, you can drink ayahuasca anywhere now. It's available it's available everywhere, in any, in any major city. I've drunk ayahuasca in Tokyo, I've drunk it in Los Angeles, I've drunk it in London as well as in the, in the Amazon. Uh, and this is, a, this is a missionary process that's taking place. We are in need of help. 
we are in need of the good news that uh, ayahuasca brings. Now, with saying that, I also want to say that not is all rosy, not is all beautiful in the psychedelic garden. One of the things that I've observed with ayahuasca, and I guess it's inevitable since we live in an insane society, uh, is that there are individuals who are using ayahuasca for personal gain. There are individuals who are using ayahuasca to gain power over others. One of the things with, uh, with ayahuasca is that um, you have to surrender. You have to lower your shields. That's the way that the medicine can begin to work at you. But when you lower your shields, you are also lowering them to any psychic vampire who happens to be in the group drinking with you. Uh, and I have seen negative consequences from this. We need to find a new way forward to work with these powerful medicines uh, in a way that brings out their best potential for all of us. But how can we do that in a society where all of these medicines are universally illegal? We need to change that situation. Just as the heretics of the 16th and 17th centuries changed the situation. As more and more new evidence came out which could not be explained by the previous earth-centered paradigm, it became obvious that those who held to the earth-centered paradigm were, in fact, completely wrong. And it's going to be the case with psychedelics too. We're going to, we're going to see more and more evidence coming out that can't be explained by the paradigm of the war on drugs by the paradigm that says these substances are just evil and bad and, 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 and useless. We're going to see transformations taking place that are of great importance. And as time goes by, what was a heresy uh, will come to be understood as right. So I, my appeal to, to, to all of you is to proudly stand up and be a heretic. Never allow a politician to get away with any statement about the war on drugs. The war on, the war on drugs is a huge error of our society and an error that desperately needs to be changed because it is fundamentally about individual freedom of consciousness. And I think there's nothing more important than that. So, um, I, would, I would love to take some questions if there are any questions. And discussion. We have a few minutes. Uh, yes. Where is my ayahuasca? <laughs> uh, as I said, I came from. I came here from a trip in the U.S. and and boy was it a trip. Uh, we went up to Mount Shasta, uh, and there we worked actually with an Englishman who's who's a shaman up there. But he trained amongst the Shipibo in Peru, uh, and on the uh, Friday night. Uh, he gave us uh, a very powerful ayahuasca brew. Uh, and we had, we had an extraordinary night of, of revelations. Um, I, actually, it was, it was uh, one of the occasions where ayahuasca really took me by surprise. Because um, I passed through almost the whole night until about three in the morning without having any visions at all. And in a way, there was a kind of sigh of relief, you know, that I kind of got away lightly without being snatched away to a seamlessly convincing parallel universe. Um, but then I, I started to feel a bit hungry and I ate some watermelon. And I don't know what that did to me, but it somehow released the ayahuasca that was maybe stuck in the pit of my stomach. And, and suddenly I found myself with a, with a full-on 
one of the most powerful visionary experiences that I've ever had in my life. Utterly extraordinary. A little bit scary, but, but the, 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 the scary aspect of it was, was worth going through. Then the next day, we usually after an ayahuasca session, you do a sharing. You, you, you share with other members of the group the experiences that you've had during the night. And then come 2 o'clock in the afternoon, we drank another brew. This time not ayahuasca, but San Pedro, Huachuma, uh, which is made from uh, the San Pedro cactus, which grows in South America, and where the active ingredient is mescaline. And boy, that was an extraordinary experience as well. Uh, it's the first time I've ever experienced San Pedro. I have a friend in the audience who actually gave me some San Pedro many years ago, but I didn't take it at that time. This time in Mount Shasta, I did, and the effects lasted for 12 hours. I did feel slightly nauseous all day because I had eaten something in the morning, which was a mistake. Uh, but I found myself incredibly at one with the universe. It didn't seem uh, absurd to hug a tree and to talk to a tree. In fact, I spent the whole afternoon hugging and talking to trees um, and, and, and looking up at the, the wonderful Mount Shasta covered with snow looming above us and realizing that this mountain is conscious. This, this mountain is alive. This planet is alive. Everything is alive. It's not dead matter as we are taught by the society we live in. So in the answer to where is my ayahuasca, I guess it's still inside me. <laughs> uh, yes. So your question is, do I think that the plants are actually going to become angry with us about the way that we're handling and managing them? Not giving them the respect, yeah. Well, that's a, that's, that's a, that's a fair point. I mean, what... One thing I've come to understand over the last decade is that plants are conscious. They're fully conscious. It's a mistake to think of them as just kind of biomass. Actually, what I think plants are, not, perhaps not all of them the same, but what plants are, the ayahuasca vine, the shakruna, the shakruna leaves, psilocybin mushrooms, what they are is uh, the antennae in the physical plane of vast cosmic intelligences. And those vast cosmic intelligences are interested in the Earth and are interested in the future of this amazing planet. I mean, it's probable that there are millions of garden planets like the Earth. It's probable that millions of them are populated by intelligent life. But we don't, we don't know that. Right now, all we know is that this one is here. And, and Based on that knowledge, we should regard this planet and our opportunity to be born in a human body upon this planet uh, as an incredible gift, an incredible privilege, something to be celebrated and honored every day. And the sacred plants help us to do that. I'm not saying everybody needs them. There, there, are, there are people who are born with a bypass to the dominated system. But, but for those of us who've been pushed down by the dominator system. These plant allies are the best hope we have. And might they become annoyed with us uh, for the way that we are handling them, for an element of disrespect? My experience with the, with the psychedelics, at any rate, is that if you disrespect them, they will give you a thoroughly profound kicking. Uh, and they will, they will show you exactly what that disrespect was. And, and, and they will teach you not 
to do it again. So I actually think the plants are are able to to look after themselves to to a large to a large extent. Um, the idea of the plants becoming angry with us uh, doesn't ring with me. I, I I think that that would be I don't know that would be like us becoming angry with a with a blackbird or, or, or a robin, you know, because it sits on a branch. I mean, the, the, I think the plant intelligence ultimately is so far beyond our own intelligence uh, that they, they would not feel anger with us, perhaps pity, uh, perhaps, perhaps seek another way to, to help us round the problems. I realize that there's a whole kind of industrialization of cannabis going on. And it's a horrible thought, but maybe it won't be long before Monsanto is in there, you know, uh, making billions out of cannabis as well. Um, and, and as we go forward in this, in this, I think we need to keep in mind the issue of freedom. Uh, that we don't want to hand these plants over to big controlling corporations. Uh, they're, the, they're the ones who've been responsible for all the wrongs. We don't, want to, we don't want to hand them over to them. We want to keep the right place for this is in individual hands. Making decisions about our own lives and, the, and the working with the plants, not in an industrialized, profit-driven, commercialized way. Uh, but in a sacred in a sacred way, I've found over the years that with psychedelics, for sure, um, an element of ceremony is really important. Let's remember that actually what we're dealing with here is a vast cosmic intelligence, some kind of goddess, uh, and, and, and we must give her respect. And if we give respect, if we honor her with ceremony, if we keep our intentions pure, then the results will be positive. And part of the revolution that's taking place is to take power away from the big corporations, take power away from the big governments, take power away from the big media. Uh, and we must do that consciously in everything and everything we do regarding plants as well. Yes. Yeah, so, so your, your question is, I, I talk about being a heretic. What about my, my own journey? What, what, what happened with me? That's a bit self-indulgent if I do too much of that. But uh, just briefly, um, I, for some reason, which I don't understand, I've always been an outsider. It may be the fact that I'm an only child. I had three siblings, but they all died in childhood. Um, I, never, I, I didn't grow up in a large family, and, and um, this m made me, I don't know, somehow stand back in a way from the rest of us. I never found myself at the center of anything. I always found myself on the edges of stuff. And I regarded, always regarded myself as a marginal person out there in the margins. And I think out there in the margins is a good place to be because that's where change happens in society. If we, if we lock ourselves into the center, then we're in a place of no change, a place of stasis. Uh, out on the margins, things, things can change. I have, I've never feared about speaking my truth. Uh, I, I spoke... Uh, I, some of you will know uh, I had a, a very long relationship with cannabis. I still do, actually. Um, but uh, for 24 years, I came to cannabis late. I came to cannabis in 1987 when I was 37 years old. I really had a, only had a few, you know, a few joints before that. But I, I got into it in a serious way in 1987, uh, and I carried on. And then, come about 1992. I discovered that I could write under the influence of cannabis. I used to keep it that uh, I only smoked at evenings and weekends, but then I found it was, you know, writing a book 
can involve sitting in a chair for 16 hours a day, and that brings um, a kind of physical boredom. And cannabis relieved that for me, and it didn't stop me working and writing. And I, I started to use cannabis 16 hours a day, seven days a week, without remit. And I began to plan my life around cannabis. Uh, if I were going to go to another country, I would want to have local contacts on the ground who could get me a good supply of bud, uh, because otherwise I wouldn't be enjoying myself. And I didn't realize that in a way, uh, I was um, becoming the servant of the plant. And it was no longer serving me. And it was a series of ayahuasca sessions in Brazil um, in 2011 that stopped me dead in my tracks. And I was, I was shown that my relationship with cannabis had become abusive uh, and that it was leading me not to be the person I wanted to be, that I wasn't nurturing, I wasn't generous. I was rather suspicious and, and doubtful about everybody around me. And, and I was shown that I absolutely had to stop. And it wasn't even difficult to stop. When I got home, I found I actually couldn't smoke cannabis. I was physically revolted by it. So three years passed, completely without any cannabis at all. Absolutely none. I found it didn't affect my writing. In a way, my writing got quicker and better. Um, and and uh, I felt good about that. Then I was on the Joe Rogan experience in... Uh, <laughs> in September 2014 uh, in Los Angeles. And Joe asked me, well, so how's it going with you and cannabis? And I, I said, well, I'm still not smoking any cannabis. Three years have passed now. But I'm beginning to wonder if I could dip my toes back in the water. So Joe says, why don't you start now? And pulls out this lovely joint of California bud and lights it up. So we smoked it right there live on air. And uh, I really liked it. I, I must say that three years without smoking cannabis does wonders for your tolerance level. You know, a bit of a joint before then would have had almost no effect on me. This completely blew me away. And I still had to handle an hour and a half of the conversation with Joe. Then at the end of it, at the end of the conversation, I was still flying. And I had a rented car outside. I couldn't drive it. So I had to call my wife to come and collect me and take me home. Um, but I did enjoy that cannabis. And then I did a road trip which took me across Washington State where cannabis is legal and across Oregon State where cannabis is legal. And I had access to more and I enjoyed that more as well. Uh, so I thought maybe I can go back to some kind of new relationship with cannabis. And the, the, what I've come to is that uh, I will occasionally take cannabis in the form of oil. I take cannabis oil orally I like, I like oral cannabis um, because it lasts for such a long time. Five hours, you know, in that very positive state. I'm, I'm resolved that I will not write under the influence of cannabis. Uh, that I will use it in a sacred way um, with respect. I love the sensuality of cannabis. That's, to me, one of the very important things about it. That it brings me back into contact with my senses uh, in a way that I value. And so I intend to continue working with cannabis, mainly in the form of cannabis oil, um, and, and, uh, but, but not to allow it to become a dominant influence in, in my life. I want to steer my life, and uh, I want to benefit from this beautiful plant in, in a way rather than, rather than get completely bent out of shape. Uh, I don't think it was the cannabis that bent me out of shape. I think it was my own internal nature that bent me out of shape, which the cannabis revealed. So... I think the important thing about being a heretic is just to speak out, speak the truth.
Tell your truth, even if it's risky, even if there's a danger in doing so. Speak it out. The more of us who speak out, the more of us who come out of the psychedelic closet and speak openly about it, the more likely we are to get change. Uh, and, and, and the more likely it is that we will, in due course, have some kind of revolution in our society, that will overthrow this dominator system that seeks to control our consciousness. Uh, one more question. Okay, three more questions. One, two, three, yes. It doesn't make sense because there's 150,000 different species of plants and trees in the Amazon. Uh, and it would be an extraordinary scientific endeavor to, fi to find those two and realize they work together by trial and error. What the shamans say is the spirits taught them to do it. Uh, and, and how did the spirits teach them to do it? Well, there's a snuff in the Amazon called Yopo, which is a DMT snuff, which, you can, which goes straight to the brain. You can inhale it you know, through the nose. Uh, and, and in Yopo's trances, they were given the recipe for ayahuasca, that there were guiding spirits there who, who taught them. Now, this sounds absurd and crazy to anybody stuck into the Western materialist tradition. But who's to say the Western materialist tradition is right? Who's to say that there aren't other intelligences and other, other entities and other forms of consciousness that we are simply too locked down and closed in to see? And that these ancient and sacred plants allow us to make contact with for our benefit. For our benefit. Uh, yes. Thank you. Have I ever met other entities? All the time. All the time. You know, it's a curious thing, the, the notion of the entity behind ayahuasca. In the Amazon, there are a number of tribes who regard the spirit of ayahuasca as male, as masculine. But here in the West, the universal experience of people drinking ayahuasca is that they're communicating with a feminine entity. And the words, the, the phrase mother ayahuasca, it, or, or the grandmother, is very, very frequently used. And, and in a way, in a way we're, we in the West are having the kind of intimate contact with a goddess that the ancient Greeks had with Athena or, or Venus, a, a goddess who speaks to us and communicates with us. So yes, I have met Mother Ayahuasca many times. She has wrapped me in her coils of a giant serpent and rested her head on my shoulder and just looked in my eyes, unblinking, for two hours. And the message was, if you don't learn to love yourself, you'll be no use at loving anybody else. Because I was going through a period of self-hatred at that, at that time, and I got just the message I, I needed. With um, smoked DMT, and my God, that is a rocket ship to the other side of reality. I mean, ayahuasca, the active ingredient is DMT, but it's absorbed orally because of, we, we uh, raised the issue of the monoamine oxidase inhibitor in the ayahuasca vine and allowing the DMT to be absorbed orally. Uh, there's negotiation with the experience. You know, you can... You can resist it if you want to, although that's not a very good idea. But with smoked DMT, once you hit the dose, there's no negotiation whatsoever. You're going to be taken where it takes you, whether you want it or not. And on one occasion, 
where I had a massive, very disturbing DMT trip in uh, Utah, um, I found myself, I, I got the fourth hit on the pipe before I fell back, and then, and then I found myself in a place which was utterly confusing and strange, and then a voice spoke in my ear, and it said, you're ours now. And I said, fuck yes, but only for 12 minutes. <laughs> and then I was theirs for those 12 minutes. And then when I came out and back into the room, I didn't even know what a room was or where, where I was or, or who I was. But in that encounter, I met an entity that I meet many times with DMT who I call the trickster. And he, he comes in a male form and he's very tall and lean and he makes peculiar hand movements as though he's stretching out pieces of wire. And those hand movements seem to me to be a kind of communication that something, something is being downloaded into me which I'm not re yet ready to read. Um, so in answer to your question, yeah, I do meet entities uh, a lot. Uh, and you know what? I can't prove it. I absolutely can't prove that they aren't just figments of my brain on drugs. But I think they're real. I think reality is much more complicated than we've been thought, than we've been taught. I think it's multi-layered, it's multi-dimensional. We are locked in to channel normal. We are plugged into the physical realm. We need to be, there's nothing wrong with that. We need to know the laws of physics. If I didn't know the laws of physics, I might step off this stage and that would hurt and be very muddy. But, but that's not the only aspect of reality. There is so much more beyond it and the gift of the plants is that they allow us to gain access to that wider reality and at the same time to realize how limiting, how controlling, how negative, how utterly ghastly the social structures that we have created actually are. So, okay, one more, one more. Do I believe or think that by taking DMT in one form or another it can possibly change my DNA or genetic makeup. I think you'd have to ask David Nutt that. Uh, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a scientist. Uh, I'm not sure how it, how it works. I mean, we are discovering that experiences of famine, for example, 200 years ago, are making an impact on DNA. That goes quite against you know, the basic Darwinian idea, epigenetics, but it does seem to be, it does seem to be happening. So why not? Why, why shouldn't these experiences change our DNA in some way. How, how else can I explain the fact? I, I, I've talked to a, a number of people over the last month. Four of them, four of them in different cities were people who had been diagnosed with terminal cancer. The medical establishment had washed their hands off them. All they could offer them were extremely painful chemo and radiotherapies, which utterly ruined the quality of their lives. Each one of these four individuals took the decision to go down to the Amazon and drink ayahuasca. Each one of them went into remission. And they are still in remission today. And their doctors can't understand why this has happened. Now, that's anecdotal. We need more science on this. Is that the power of the brain over the mind? Maybe. I don't know. I mean, we are. my view is that we are fundamentally not our bodies. I said that at the beginning. We are our consciousness. It's the consciousness that matters. And if the consciousness is at a low level where it's jingoistic and deeply involved in 
you know, nationalism and racism, then that consciousness will not be able to manage the business of the body very well. If the consciousness is elevated to a higher level, then I have no doubt that that consciousness can impact bodily health in extraordinary ways. And maybe that's why ayahuasca is producing these extraordinary remissions in cancers. I would like to see more science done on this, less anecdotal work. Let's prove it. Let's prove, let's prove it scientifically that ayahuasca is producing remission of cancer. And then let's see what our fucking governments do with it. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. And can I, can I just say, can I just say, it was an absolute honor to speak on the same stage as Professor David Knight. This, this is a man who speaks his truth, who speaks his truth, and his name is going to go down in history. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Again, I'd like to thank fellow Saloner Paul Harley for recording this talk and uh, Dr. David Nutt's talk that I podcast two days ago. And I apologize for taking so long to get these talks out to the Salon. However, I do think that they have both come at a good time for us to learn from. So uh, thanks again, Paul. I, I really appreciate your contribution to the Salon. After listening to this talk with you, I now wish that I'd been better organized and podcast it shortly after it was given. You know, I've heard Graham Hancock speak in person on several occasions, as well as well as having the opportunity to visit with him a little bit. But I must admit that from the last time I saw him until listening to him today, it seems to me that something has changed in him. There's a fire in his belly, and now I'm planning on following his work more closely from now on. You know, I've always been drawn to his books and lectures, but after this talk, I've come to realize how close he and I are in our view of the world, and uh, <laughs> I'm now his biggest fan. Do you remember uh, early on in this talk when he mentioned that uh, Terence McKenna story? Well, if you're a long-time listener here in the salon, you will also remember hearing Terence tell that story himself. And I wish that I could tell you which podcast it was in, but <laughs> I've now posted over 275 programs that feature Terrence McKenna. And uh, even when I was younger, <laughs> well, there was just no way that I could remember which podcast his various stories were in. But if you happen to remember where it can be found, I would be eternally grateful if you'd post it in the comments section of the program notes for this podcast, which you'll find at psychedelicsalon.com. And uh, didn't you love it when he said, Whenever I travel the world, I find that people are exactly the same. The same hopes, the same fears, the same dreams, the same capacity to love. We are, none of us, any different. I learned this myself by traveling for sure, but it really hit home when I became close friends with a Vietnamese man who was orphaned at the age of eight when an American bomb accidentally was dropped on his home. Now, over several years, we became really close friends, and the deeper we got into conversations about life, the more clear it became that our differences in culture, race, and language were simply impediments to reaching an understanding of who we actually were. And we discovered that at our most basic level, we were exactly alike. And you know, that goes for you and me too. 
At our cores, we share a common humanity, and the intelligent use of psychedelics, I think, is a good way to imprint this truth on us all. And on that note, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>